I'm just extend my welcome, joining with Bex to say if you're here for the first time or you're visiting, you're so, so welcome. Um, it's really good to have you here. Merry Christmas. Um, I'm just going to pray before I begin. My name's Matt, by the way. Um, I head up the church here along, along with my wife. Lord, thank you that you're here. I want to ask, Lord, that the words that I'm about to speak uh, would point to you. We know that in Jesus um, is found life, light, and hope. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us now. Amen. Two questions. What's Christmas, and what does it mean? Let's go. Number one, what's Christmas? Christmas is when God writes himself into the script. It's when God writes himself into the script. What do I mean? Let me tell you. 1961, Yuri Gagurin, Russian cosmonaut, first man to orbit Earth in outer space, comes back down. The then Soviet president, Nikita Khrushchev, says this. Well, we've seen the heavens, and we find no evidence of God up there. Therefore, we conclude that God cannot exist. Two years later, 1963, C.S. Lewis, famous for Narnia, one of the great academics of the 20th century, writes a short essay called The Seeing Eye, in which he responds to Khrushchev and Gagurin. And in it, he says this, I am told that Mr. Khrushchev reports that he has not found God in outer space. But looking for God by exploring outer space is like reading all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters. What did he mean? He meant that if God exists and we were to discover him, it wouldn't be in the same way that a person on the first or the ground floor of a building discovers someone on the second, third, tenth, hundredth floor of the building. It's not a case of just getting high enough and maybe we'll discover God. He says it's a completely different kind of dynamic. It would be similar to, they're not exactly the same, uh, an author of a book uh, revealing themselves to their characters or, or a playwright revealing themselves to one of their characters or the creator revealing uh, themselves to uh, one of their characters. It would be similar to... Shakespeare revealing himself to Hamlet, J.K. Rowling revealing herself to Harry Potter, Julia Donaldson, for those of you who are tired-eyed, up at five in the morning, trying to read your kids' books, revealing herself to the Gruffalo. Like, how would the Gruffalo discover Julia Donaldson, his creator? How would Harry Potter discover J.K. Rowling? How would Hamlet discover Shakespeare? And the answer is, if Shakespeare, Rowling, and Donaldson wrote themselves into the script if they revealed themselves to their characters. Amazing example of this in real life, middle of the 20th century, Dorothy L. Sayers, one of the great crime fiction writers of her era, massively popular in her day, wrote a series of novels called the Peter Whimsey novels. They were crime detective crime fiction novels. And they centered around a character called Peter Whimsey, who was an amazing code breaker. He was super bright. He caught the bad guys, um, and he was the hero. But there was one thing that Peter lacked, uh, and that was he was extremely lonely. So he had everything that you could possibly imagine, but he was lonely. And here's what happened. It's a little bit weird, but bear with me. Dorothy L. Sayers, the real person, the author, fell in love with her character, Peter Whimsey, and decided that she was going to rescue him by writing herself into the script. So halfway through the series, a, a new character appears called Harriet Vane. 
Uh, many people have observed Harriet Vane shares many of the characteristics, as Dorothy says, her creator. For example, she's one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, which was true of Dor Dorothy Sayers. Harriet and Peter meet, they fall in love, they hop on the good foot, do the bad thing, get married and live happily ever after. What happened there? Dorothy fell in love with her character and decided to rescue him in, by writing herself into the script. And I would say, what's Christmas? That's Christmas. At Christmas, God the creator looks down upon his creation and he sees a world that he adores, he loves, made in love for love, through love. But it's also a world gone wrong, broken, messy, dark. And he decides to do something about it by literally writing himself into the script in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's infinity made finite. It's the invisible God making himself known. It's what one writer said, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. It's amazing. So what's Christmas? Christmas is God writing himself into the script. But the second question I have for you this evening is what does it mean? What does it even mean? And the answer is tidings of comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. Now you might be forgiven for thinking Christmas is an escapist, nostalgic, sentimental conspiracy theory designed by John Lewis, Richard Curtis, Mariah Carey, Coldplay, Rod Stewart. Like, that's an amazing thing to get a number one at his age, isn't it? I, I would say, let's give him a round of applause, but that would be too much. Um, Robbie Williams and Tyson Fury, phenomenal, uh, number one there. But you could say that Christmas is a sort of schmaltzy, nostalgic, sentimental conspiracy designed to lull you into a false sense of security and burn a hole in your wallet. That's what Christmas is. It's schmaltz. But don't get me wrong, I like this Western consumer schmaltz as much as anyone. I love the Oxford Street Lights. I love the Trafalgar Square tree, even though it's missing a few pine needles and branches this year. And we definitely are really grateful to Norway for sending it through, uh, as they have done every year since the Second World War. Um, I don't know if any of you know that story, but it's looking a bit threadbare this year. It doesn't matter, let's not dwell on that. Uh, I love um, Christmas cracker jokes. Here's one for you. What's a dog's favorite carol? Bark the herald angels sing. If you don't like that, also silent bite, but we can get those. And and, and what's also good about schmaltz, schmaltzy Christmas, is if you're really lucky and you've been good, for goodness sake, um, Santa might squeeze his belly full of jelly down the, chin, the, chimney, uh, down the chimney on Christmas Eve to bring, bring a footballer's autobiography you might never read, a pair of socks, a Terry's chocolate orange, and a satsuma. I love schmaltzy Christmas, but here's the thing. The message of Christmas is tidings of comfort and joy, and you don't get tidings of comfort and joy through schmaltz. You get that through the real Christmas. What is the real Christmas? The real Christmas is God entering into the world in all of its beauty and all of its mess. Here's a quote from a film some of you might know. It's called The Princess Bride. And a character played by William Golding says this, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Life is pain. Anyone telling you otherwise is trying to sell you something. And here's the thing I just want to say tonight. Christianity isn't selling anything. It's utterly realistic about the dark, but it's utterly joyful about the victory of the light. What do I mean by that? 2,700 years ago, a man called Isaiah lived 
at an unbelievably difficult time. He served four kings, all of them corrupt, all of them brutal, all of them tyrannical. He also served those kings at a time when threats from surrounding nations were intense. And he wrote these words that we heard earlier tonight. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those who lived in a land as dark as death, a light has dawned. You can find it in the Old Testament, Isaiah 9. Here's the thing. He's living in a world of darkness, brokenness, chaos, and fear. And yet he discovered tidings of great comfort and joy. Fast forward 700 years from then, 2,000 years ago, you have Mary and Joseph. They're kids. Mary was probably about 14 years old. Um, They're suffering under the stigma of having become pregnant out of wedlock, uh, which in their culture was deeply, deeply serious and would have meant that they were disowned. They're also refugees fleeing a king called Herod, who's decided to issue an edict to kill the firstborn son of every family in their land, so they end up fleeing to Egypt. They're refugees, they're kids, they're suffering stigma, and they're refugees. But here's what Mary says when she discovers that um, she's about to give birth to Jesus. My soul tells out the greatness of the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. You can find it in Luke 1, that's the beginning of the Bible. Mary, suffering darkness, chaos, brokenness, and fear, discovers tidings of comfort and joy. What about John? He writes another book in the Old Testament uh, about 100 AD, um, so about 50 years, I'll get my dates wrong, uh, 50 or uh, 60 years, move on, move on, after the death of Jesus, but about 90 years after he's born. John was an old man by the time he wrote the gospel. Um, He was living through the early, the period of the early church. So Jesus had died and resurrected and the early church was spreading like wildfire, but it suffered some of the greatest persecution that the church has ever discovered, including the reign of Emperor Nero, who's become synonymous with evil brutality and tyranny. John lived through that. Here's what John wrote at the end of his life about Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never mastered it. John lived at a time of darkness, chaos, brokenness, mess, and fear, and yet he discovered in the Christ child tidings of great comfort and joy. Fast forward about 2,000 years, more to the modern world, December 1914, Christmas, Eep. Trench warfare on the front, First World War. Suddenly out of the trenches at nighttime on Christmas Eve, the sound of German soldiers singing Stille Nacht or Silent Night comes over the no man's land in between the German trenches and the, and the British trenches. From the British side, a football's kicked out into no man's land and all of a sudden, warfare is transformed into competitive sport, which is perhaps more brutal, but also fun. An extraordinary story or picture of peace breaking out in the midst of fear. Light breaking out in the midst of darkness. Those soldiers knew what it, mean to, knew what it meant to live in a world of chaos, darkness, brokenness, and fear. And yet they knew that evening on Christmas Day, tidings of great comfort and joy. You're getting where I'm going with this. I'm going to repeat myself until we get this. Um, Fast forward 20 years, December 1944, it's the Second World War this time, and we're looking at a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up to Hitler's death cult, and for the pleasure of standing up to Hitler's death cult, he was incarcerated in Tegel Prison, which was in Berlin. He was to be executed tragically in 1945, just before the end of the Second World War. And in December 1944, Christmas Eve, he wrote one of his final letters to his parents. And this is what he said. It included a poem. This is, what, this is one of the lines of the poem. Today, let candles shed their radiant greeting. On our darkness, are they not thy light? You can illumine even our darkest night. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew what it meant to live in a world of chaos, darkness, brokenness, and fear, and bear witness to the one who brings tidings of great. Thank you, Pete. Comfort and joy. What about us here in December 2019? Well, You don't have to look very far to discover the darkness, the brokenness, the chaos, and the fear. We could name all sorts of things right now. We haven't got long enough, and I need to get off stage to you because I'm wearing your patience thin. But here's one of the things that sociologists have called our age. They've called our age the age of anxiety. Just a few stats to sober us up this evening. In the UK alone, we spend £80.5 billion every year on entertainment that is tailored to the individual. It's consumed on screens in the privacy of our own homes, and it feeds isolation, disconnection, and loneliness. The average person in the UK now consumes three hours and 23 minutes of screen time every single day. I know I did last night. I watched two hours of Strictly Come Dancing, which was awesome. I watched Michael McIntyre for an hour, and I spent 23 minutes catching up on Liverpool-Watford in the Match of the Day highlights. So I'm part of this. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself, okay? But that adds up, listen to this, to 50 days a year screen time. On average, the UK British male consumes that. Aviva recently ran a well-being report. Here are a few stats. 16 million UK adults suffer sleepless nights. 31% of the adult British population